Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. So, Ali, welcome to CTO Confessions. It's great to have you on board, sir. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on board. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, currently, I'm the CTO uh, at Essentia, and uh, I'm, I'm leading the team uh, that's working on both the hardware and software for really disrupting uh, a whole industry. And I'm so proud of the team and what they've been able to achieve. Um, my, my training uh, goes back to being trained as a hardware engineer and then went back to school, a graduate school to do computer science. And from that, jumped into the internet bandwagon during the 90s, did a few startups, joined some big players in that space, including Sun Microsystems and uh, as well as a few startups. One of them got acquired by IBM, so has stint at IBM as well. And I've also done a number of consulting companies because I, I just enjoy looking for problems and, and, and trying to solve them. But the culmination of uh, everything I've done career-wise is just develop my skills at using technology to solve real-world problems. Brilliant. I love it. And your journey, you kind of mentioned your kind of journey from electronic engineer, high five, because I'm an electronic engineer as well. Um, and uh, to kind of the position you're in here, what was that transition like going from a very kind of techie based uh, to, to, to more leading? Great. <clears throat> so, so that comes actually with time and, and also uh, being blessed with leaders who saw potentially me that I, I didn't even see in myself. Um, if it wasn't for that, to be honest with you, I'd probably be a geek somewhere, maybe a, a principal engineer or what have yeah. you, but still cutting code or, or, or designing uh, VLSI chips. So, um, but, but really, that, that actually taps uh, the other side of me, which is uh, enjoying working with people, enjoying seeing other people grow uh, uh, under my supervision, under my guidance. Uh, I, I really enjoy that. And it's that balance between uh, using technology to solve problems and then actually seeing developing human beings, uh, creating teams to, to do that, but also just the, the, the joy and satisfaction of uh, seeing other, other people develop in front of your eyes. I love that. I love that. And we're going to cover that a little bit more when we come to the uh, kind of creating high-performing teams and what have you. So the company that you're working for at the moment, Ali, I mean, what, what's the problem that you're solving in the market? The problem we're solving in the market is that the, if you look at the beauty industry specifically, um, it is one of the largest user of single-use containers for their products. Um, and, and because of that, they, they've got a huge carbon footprint and uh, a huge contribution to the plastic problem that we have in the world. Yeah. That, that's a problem the industry is aware of, and that's a problem that the industry has been trying to tackle for a while, mostly through uh, using recyclable materials and so on and so forth. But what we, we, have, uh, what we have found is actually the, the reuse is actually much more powerful and impactful. So if you've got a container, that the uh, the, uh, the consumer can send back when it's empty 
and then it goes through a proper sanitization process and, and it gets reused again, you'll get at least a 10x uh, usage out of that and therefore a 10x reduction in terms of waste. And, and that's huge. So that's how it started initially. But what we found out very quickly as we started looking at uh, solving that problem is to do that, you have to change actually what the product is. And from then you start seeing the ramifications in terms of not only as you start changing the product, you're changing the relationship the consumer has with the product. Mm -hmm. um, and as you change how the consumer interacts with the product, it became very evident for us that we need to have an active element of intelligence that's embedded in the product. So instead of just having, for example, an RFID tag so that you can track the, the, the package, um, what we quickly uh, realized actually that you needed to have the product packaging uh, be as smart as possible so that it has a two-way interaction with, with, the, with the consumer. And that's actually where the full-blown idea of what the product that we have today. And of course, to manage all of this, both the life cycle of the product for, for the purposes of sustainability, as well as this smart interaction between the product and the consumer, to manage all of that, you, you need a very intelligent platform, right? Yes. And, and that platform basically is what the brand manufacturer uses to understand first what's happening with the product in, in its life cycle. But more importantly, for the first time, you've got the brand manufacturer having actually a direct relationship with their consumer that goes beyond the transaction at the POS. Today, um, if you buy a product uh, as, as a brand, I will know that you bought this type of product of this shape, you bought it at this store, you paid using your credit card, right? Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Um, whether you've taken that product, left it on the shelf, never used it again, I have no clue. Or you've used it once and you didn't like it, I have no clue. Mm -hmm. and, and that's actually the third element that we're opening is we're, we're bringing a level of intimacy between the brand and, and, and the consumer that is unprecedented. Love it. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, my mantra is relationship first. And this is this is quite a wonderful new uh, dimension of the brand experience, you know, kind of thing to kind of bring that tighter thing. And also the fact that you you can be part of a sustainable, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you call it a, um, a cyclic kind of uh, economy, you know, where things are kind it's of coming back. a circular economy. Absolutely. Yeah. If you look at the, the biggest driver for this is... Uh, the, the the biggest generation of consumers that 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 is impending is a generation that is hyper aware of what their impact is on the planet it's a generation that demands that the products that they use reflect the values that they espouse and and because of that and it's a, it's a it's a generation that's uh, digitally native so that, the, that those three combinations is what what creates this uh, uh, urgent demand for a shift in terms of what the next generation of products are going to be and what that interaction between the product and the consumer needs to be. Wow, that's fun. And 
may I ask what kind of clients you got working for you? We're working with some of the biggest brands actually in the industry. Um, we're, we're, as you can imagine, these are extremely innovative projects. So we're under NDA. Uh, I can't talk about specific ones, but if you can think about the top 10 brands uh, in, in the cosmetics industry, um, you, you pick one of them and, and you have one in three chance that you pick the ones that were. Oh, wow. With. Fantastic. Well done on that, you know. And when you kind of came up with this idea, um, was that was it a difficult sell? Because uh, obviously technology is about coming up with a solution uh, to a problem. Uh, but then there's this kind of element of marketing and selling it as well. What was that like? It, it isn't a, a difficult sell conceptually because what, what we're offering is literally at the nexus of the top three things that any uh, cosmetics brand cares about, which is personalization, sustainability, and innovation, right? But what the, the challenge for uh, all the brands is is three ways, actually. Uh, the, the brands are looking uh, first, anytime you're saying to a brand, you gotta change your packaging. You're looking at what is what, what, what that means in terms of the impact to their manufacturing processes, uh, what is the cost of that, and is that something that's economical? And and the answer from us is yes, it is economical uh, once you start doing it at, at scale. Yeah. Right? Um, the second one is um, uh, integrating uh, into their platform, into their uh, customer relationship management platform, integrating into their supply chain platforms. Um, and for some of the brands, uh, they have so much legacy because they're brands that have been around for more than 50, 60 years. So wow. you can imagine what kind of ERP they're running on. So that kind of integration um, depends actually on the level of digital uh, uh, maturity that they have. And, and lastly, um, the, the brands all realize the potential for using the data to, to, to drive this uh, next level of intimacy with their consumers. Uh, but again, uh, how data ready uh, is, is their organization, uh, both in terms of uh, data uh, literacy, as well as the uh, tools, systems, and processes that will enable them actually to take full advantage of the data and insights that, that our platform uh, provides. Great, that's fantastic, and that um, and that data. I mean, it's gold, isn't it? Uh, literally, it's gold. You can, you can get lots of information. I mean, we live in a world of uh, data uh, sloshing around everywhere. And what are the techniques you're using to actually kind of help the brands uh, get an understanding of um, the behaviours, the opportunities, and what have you? So, uh, if if you look again, um, for the first time, we're providing the brand uh, an insight into what's happening between the consumer and the brand, mm. besides uh, uh, the uh, transactional aspect of it. In terms of, uh, I, I like uh, I like this cream in this size, and I usually buy it in this size, or I usually buy it at this store, or I do my replenishment online. All of that stuff you can you can know today. But beyond that, what we're giving for the first time to the brands is the fact that the brand now gets to know what is my usage pattern. Uh, am I using this product uh, once a day, twice a day? Um, are there things that are driving me to use it more frequently, less frequently? 
um, and to create an opportunity to start actually making recommendations, not just about products, but about treatments and regimens. Wow. And that's something that has proven extremely popular these days uh, because what it does is it drives unprecedented levels of effectiveness. Mm. What, what most uh, research has shown is that products may be effective in terms of their formulation, right? But the reason the consumers are not seeing the results is because they're not using them effectively. Aha, right. But what that does is, if I'm not using your product effectively and I'm dissatisfied, I'm not aware that it's my behavior that's not getting that. But what I'm doing is I'm going on social networks and I'm saying the product is not effective. Yes. So instead of having that, you have a chance now to see my patterns and see that I'm not using the product effectively and then sending me a message and saying, hey, uh, Ali, you would get better results if you use the product this way. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, this goes beyond just cosmetics. You, you can just um, expand this to any product. And that is the opportunity that we see that is fully disruptive in terms of uh, retail as a whole, but super um, useful for um, an industry where the product is very intimate to, to the consumer. And it doesn't get any more intimate than actually things you put on your skin. So Ali, that's the product sounds brilliant. I'm really looking forward to seeing this kind of hitting hitting the market in a big way. If it's not already out there, I know you can't kind of mention. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I love the innovation here. So coming back to yourself as the, as the leader, the tech leader, um, what's the passion that really kind of drives you? Because we've had some great conversations offline around this. What is your passion? My passion is to use technology to solve human problems. Uh, that, that's really what it is. And the drive behind that passion is, is, is just curiosity. Um, I'm curious to understand not only how complex machines work, but I'm also curious about human behavior and, and what drives that and how people make decisions uh, or why is it that a certain product or tool um, uh, it has stickiness and, and people love to use it. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about these things. I, I don't take these things for granted. Um, I've got this, uh, I would almost see innate curiosity where I just pursue things not only intellectually, but I pursue them physically. Uh, I, I, I still remember my mother telling me that as a child, not a single toy uh, could last uh, <laughs> with me more than a couple of days. And then I have to pray it open to figure out how it works. Uh, not always able to put it back together, but, <laughs> um, but, but it, it, it comes from that joy uh, of discovery, right? Um, of course, the tension that the unknown creates, you look at something, you, you're walled by it, you're puzzled, and it creates that tension of you not knowing exactly what is the magic that makes this uh, thing t- tick. And then suddenly having that uh, the, the veil of uh, complexity being uh, lifted oh, and, and seeing how it works and getting it, there is this just rush yeah. of uh, adrenaline, endorphins, 
it, it is it is the best natural high you can get without, without yeah. an external chemical <laughs> I love that. And and the conversations we've had offline, Ali. Also, I mean, you're obviously a very curious individual. I, I I like to think I'm curious as well. In fact, you know, I I want to know how everything works. You know, uh, the brain doesn't stop. What how the hell does that work? You know, what what's going on there, and what's the magic underneath? Um, um, we kind of mentioned around curiosity isn't something that's always celebrated as much as it could be. And in fact, schools don't tend to. Um, this is my perception. Uh, don't tend to kind of enhance that as much as they could do, especially at university. Absolutely. Uh, uh, actually, it's sad because it, it starts actually as early as elementary school. Um, what, what, what we do uh, forget is that actually as human beings, we're actually born curious. Um, mm. All you have to do is just you know, observe a toddler. And there is not a thing that's going to come into their visual field, their, their reach, spatially, uh, the reach of their hands or their feet, that they're not gonna explore tactly by touching it, uh, bringing it to their mouth to mm-hmm. actually explore it further in terms of, does it have a taste? Does it have uh, uh, smell? And that, that curiosity is innate. And I think unfortunately what we do because we tend to see curiosity as the primary driver of distraction, right? And as we are trying to settle this young human person down and get them to focus on a single task, which is basically us getting them to learn one specific task that we are focused on. It may not be of interest to them, but Mm. super interest to us. For example, we want to teach the alphabets, right? Because we think it's super important. As we're trying to do that, what we are doing is we're actually killing one of the fundamental muscles for human resilience, which is curiosity, right? So what the outcome of that is you get people actually that learn the specific tasks you get them focused on, but you've stripped them down from the engine behind actually independent, continuous self-learning. And that's, I think, is a much bigger handicap than uh, having missed the ability to um, learn a multiplication table or uh, yes. properly spell, whatever. I'm, I'm not saying that these things are not important, but what I'm saying is that curiosity that drives your ability to continuously learn independently is a much more important and foundational capability. Yeah, powerful stuff. It's, it is very important. Our story is all entangled, right? Yeah. And actually sometimes amplify each other and simplify it. And so, Ali, that's really interesting, curiosity, because, I mean, it's something that, I, as you say, we were all born with. I was born with it. Um, and then uh, at some point it kind of got lost in my journey. And then I found it again. And, uh, and when, when I found it, it was actually about kind of expressing my authenticity, who I really was, you know. Um, and it's from, you know, uh, curiosity from a social uh, system perspective, from uh, kind of how things work and what have you. So um, so is this something that you kind of, in the teams that you work with, this is something that you kind of spark up again, you know, in people? Absolutely. I mean, what, one of the things, and again, I've got one of my mentors to credit for, um, that, that I use and I've learned is that, for example, uh, one way to spark that curiosity back into our teams 
is us as leaders not to always hand out the answer. Uh, and, and that's something I had to fight the temptation, <laughs> especially in, in the corporate world where efficiency is actually the highest value that's being rewarded. Yes. And you'd say that I can hand them the answer right now and, and get done with this issue and move on to the other 25 that I have unresolved. Or I can hold back and give them a day or two to get curious about this, right? Yeah. And and develop that muscle. And and resisting the temptation to to go for efficiency is extremely hard. And I know that because I've experienced it firsthand. Yeah. So have you have you nailed it now? I don't think so. I, I think I think it's an ongoing struggle. And, and and I think it takes the humility of understanding that each day we wake up and we get a chance to create who we are and to create the impact we want to have in the surrounding we have. Yes. Uh, as opposed to thinking that today I've, I've reached the pinnacle, I've checked all the boxes and I'm done. Because yeah. when I'm done, uh, I, I know when I'm done is when I'm six feet under. That's when I'm done. <laughs> but as, as long as I'm alive and I'm kicking, there's, there's still work to be done. Yes. Yeah, I love this. And and the, the lens of curiosity, it um it's it is very fulfilling. It's uh you know, if you allow yourself to kind of be in that and 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 also the skill of learning to kind of resist, okay. Um it's something that I had to learn as well as a leader is to resist certain kind of innate things because we're conditioned. We're conditioned exactly. to be and then we try to then kind of send it on to the next generation of of leaders and what have you. There's lots of outcomes from this, you know, which kind of brings me on to a leadership, okay. So how do you roll as a leader? And I can imagine curiosity as a leader is very powerful as well. Absolutely. Um, if we are not curious about the people we're leading, if we're not curious about the organizations we're part of, if we're not curious about the consumers and customers we're serving, I don't understand what kind of leader we're going to be. We're going to be mediocre leaders at the yeah, at best, yeah. in spite of all the good intentions. I think what curiosity does for a leader is it brings, in terms of the uh, the human side, it brings uh, unprecedented and authentic levels of uh, uh, of compassion and of uh, empathy. And that's something that is extremely lacking in today's corporate leadership, where we're, we're super trained and conditioned for uh, looking at processes, looking at the bottom line, leading with, with an Excel spreadsheet kind of mentality that we've lost touch. Uh, and, and that's why, unfortunately, it's so easy to be a good leader these days, because if you can get back into the human uh, side of things, you would have a lot more impact on your teams than than the average leader out there. Mm-hmm. Um, which is again something that is natural. We we should naturally be empathic. We should we should naturally be compassionate to our own kind. Uh, but again, we we put these things aside. We suppress them. We see them as vulnerabilities, if not outright weaknesses. And, and, and we think that they have no space uh, or place in, in, in the work environment. I, I think for, far from it, it's the other way around. Mm. Uh, these things actually enhance our environments, enhance the relationships we have with both our employees as well as our customers. 
and makes the quality of the, the hours we spend at work, which is actually more than the hours we spend with our loved ones, mm. makes the quality of those hours a lot better than, than just going into this sterile mechanical environment that, yes. that we think of as work. I, I can imagine, you know, this curiosity is really powerful for your leadership and you, I, I can see that you use it even in the conversations that we've had. What's not worked in the past so that our audience can learn from maybe some of your lessons? Uh, anything that, that goes to extreme, uh, that, gets, that is unbounded, uh, gets you in trouble. And, and, and it's the same with curiosity. Um, you know how they say that curiosity killed the cat? Uh, that that's basically what it is. So it's not about negating curiosity altogether, but understanding that you have to put boundaries. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you will never get anything done. You'll just be in this uh, open-ended discovery mode, which is fun, but it's not productive, mm. right? Um, I mean, if we were in in just this uh, uh, brainstorming think tank where we just have to come up with ideas and. We don't have to to drive outcomes. It would be fun, but since the purpose of an organization is actually to to get a product, create a service, deliver it, uh, it, it is important to make sure you you bound it. And and that's that's gotten me in trouble in the past, in terms of uh, getting excited about something, pursuing that curiosity unboundedly, and then winding up, uh, for example, missing deadlines or. But but we have a better idea. It doesn't matter. Yes. You you broken the sacred relationship between you and the customer in terms of making a promise, setting expectation. Yeah. And to me, that's that's the balance. The balance is to understand that you let curiosity uh, work uh, natively, uh, organically. But then you put in the bounds uh, by setting proper expectations, both internally with your teams, with your management, other stakeholders, as well externally with customers and partners. And as as these two start colliding, right, mm. the, the the limitations of expectations, as well as the the drive and where where curiosity wants to take you. These are beautiful opportunities for negotiation. And what I find when you bring it that way in this disciplined approach and you bring it as a negotiation as opposed to uh, a fait accompli. I mean, I'm sorry. I've decided actually that um, I'm going to pursue this and because I know it's better for you. Um, nobody appreciates that. Mm. I think people appreciate when you bring a proposal to them. And there is this interesting exchange uh, because I don't understand your circumstances. I don't understand your priorities. I don't understand your constraints. But if we bring that, then you'll find actually that those boundaries where um, the, the discipline of execution and the freedom of exploration of curiosity, they're not as rigid as we think of them. They're yeah. actually super flexible. We just need to know how to get them to vibrate mm. uh, and negotiate so that they can flux. Uh, and, and then sometimes you'll find actually that you may trigger curiosity with your stakeholders, be it internal or external. And when that happens, it's amazing because they'll pull you in totally different directions. Mm. Um, 
and 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 that's how curiosity feeds on each other yeah but it needs to be again uh in this disciplined framework so that you can still be functional and productive Great. That's excellent. Now, coming on from your leadership now to kind of creating high performing teams, we've covered some of the topics already. Um, what are the things that you do uh, to kind of create high performing teams? What, what's the kind of magic? It, it, it's a simple word. It's called trust. Uh, if you can create teams where the team members trust each other, uh, trust their leadership, and more importantly, all of them, both the leadership and the team, trust in in the mission that that's a killer team mm. yeah i love that and uh, again speaking to uh, the five dysfunctions of the team patrick renzi um he speaks of that the kind of the fundamental thing without that you got you basically you're you're on a on a hiding <laughs> you know in lots of different kind of contexts so yeah mm. i i think that's great and how do you bring about that trust what what's the what's the things that you do within your leadership trust actually is is a power dynamic and therefore, it has to start from the, the person who has the more power, in this case, the leader. So the leader actually has to extend trust to the team first. Mm, that's right. Because that, that leader has enough power that allows them to be vulnerable, right? And they have enough power to control um, the, the, the impact of extending that trust, right? And once as a leader, you extend the trust to your team. Uh, and, and that starts with creating a, a psychologically safe space where people can be themselves, uh, a space where people can speak up and, and, and genuinely express their opinions without fear of repercussion, without... And repercussion can be as simple as being ridiculed all the way to actually making a, a comment or recommendation that's career limiting, right? Yes. So it, so all of these things are things that the leader can initiate. So that's number one. Number two, creating a space where the team can start exploring, the team members amongst themselves can start exploring, attempting to trust each other. Having And the way you do that as a leader is you have to create these uh, dependencies between people. And it's that dependency that creates that space where you and I can see, can we trust each other, right? And I have to run ahead of the ball and trust that you're going to pass the ball as opposed to be selfish and think you're going to attempt your own strike, right? So the third element of trust is actually to create a culture of trust. And the, the simplest way I can describe the, the culture of trust is by juxtaposing it to its opposite, which is a culture of blame. Ah. So the way you create a culture of trust is to allow people to make mistakes and not be punished for making a mistake, right? And because when, when people are afraid of being punished, that's when secrets start becoming created. And that's actually what erodes all trust. How we choose to react to that has significant impact of what kind of a culture do we create for the team. And to me, that's uh, the third critical element of creating trust. Wise words. Brilliant. I love this. One of the other things I wanted to kind of come on to was because uh, we live in the COVID era right now. And uh, working remotely has become a thing. You know, uh, we're all we're all remote here. Um 
I'd love to be sat on a couch uh, with a kind of gin and tonic or hot beverage, having a chat around, you know, doing the podcast. But unfortunately, we've got to do that. So, leading remotely, what's your kind of tips around that? I, I, I think one thing to, to realize again, and it comes back to the, the trust conversation we have, is to realize that what makes a team is not that they are a collection of individuals that happen to be in the same space. Once we realize that, then geographic distribution becomes less relevant. Of course, mm-hmm. the realities of things like working across time zones, being sensitive that somebody is uh, morning in somebody else's uh, uh, time for lunch or somebody else's uh, sleep time, being aware of these things is uh, super important. So the balance between knowing that your team is distributed, they, they are functioning under different time zones, they have different needs, that awareness is actually what allows you to know how to adjust mm. uh, to the constraints of what that distribution imposes on you. Yeah, that's great. And on the topic of creating these teams, you kind of mentioned that you kind of you sound international and you're global, you know, in a lot of different locations. There's also the uh, the concept of augmenting teams. So having people in-house that are employed by you directly. What's your thoughts on uh, outsourcing, which is when you kind of send a project out, just completely hand it over to somebody. Insourcing, where people join your team, uh, maybe a quite short notice kind of thing. Um, what's your thoughts on that? To, to be honest with you, I don't like the word outsourcing um, because outsourcing is almost like uh, you're taking uh, tasks that, that are a headache and you, you, you're giving it to somebody else to take care of that headache. Yeah. Uh, and, and there may be tasks you want to do that with. Um, uh, I, 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 I agree. But the, what, what I like is to create actually what we call dynamic teams, right? Uh, and to create a, a functioning dynamic team, you need to have uh, the core of the team first. Uh, the core of the team c- cannot be uh, people who don't fully engage in the identity of the team, right? Yeah. So core teams are usually what we call uh, badge carrying team members, right? Yeah. Uh, everybody's wearing the same jersey. There, there is a, a full investment uh, in in the team identity, right? Uh, yeah. People associate themselves with the organization. People are proud to call themselves members of that organization, and and there is that imbued sense of uh, team membership. Once you have that, then each one of these core members gets to decide how they're gonna expand their function. Um, they might decide they want to have. Uh, a full-time employee, or they might decide that uh, based on the need and capacity requirements, they may augment their team, either in time or in numbers, based on what the needs of the function that they're trying to fulfill. It, It may make sense actually for me to find somebody who's good at that, who's willing to collaborate with my internal team and and actually hire them to augment my team and bring that whole function or capability uh, to the team yeah and, and and that makes sense because the boundaries again are, are very well defined so the key thing is if it's critical to your core business you need to anchor it internally and then you can 
augment with numbers and time. If it's not critical to your core business, you can uh, augment a whole function, but that whoever you bring in to augment that whole function needs to be able to collaborate with your internal team. Brilliant. That's lovely. That's great advice. And uh, I think there's some, uh, yeah, great advice there. Uh, great wisdom. And um, coming on now to um, the kind of closing arc of the podcast, uh, what's the advice that you give for tech leaders, aspiring tech leaders out there, Ali? Number one, do what you love and you'll do it to the best. Um, yeah. So if you find yourself, quality assurance is not something you love, find out what you love. Uh, is it front-end development? Is it uh, designing websites? What, whatever it is, find what you love because then it'll be easy for you to garner the discipline and the energy required to become excellent at it. Yes. Uh, if it's just uh, something you're doing because of the money, it's going to become a chore and chores are things that get us exhausted very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Number two, um, start bringing your whole self to work. Meaning don't just come as the brains, come as the full person and therefore interact with your fellow uh, colleagues as human beings. Um, allow yourself the, the, the time for the little chit chat around the coffee, uh, all of these things. Because sometimes people think that that's a bad thing. It is a good thing. As long as it doesn't become actually 80% of what you do at the office is you're yeah. just chit-chatting with your colleagues. <laughs> um, but having that flexibility, and I can tell you, um, because then later on, it allows you the informal channel for getting things done. Uh, I remember so many times as an aspiring uh, tech lead myself uh, back in my younger days, where because of that relationship I built with my colleagues, uh, things may start just as a comment over lunch, right? And then I wind up being invited to the office of a senior engineer, right? Mm. Who actually whiteboards with me the solution to my problem. Yes. Right? So, uh, and, and for somebody who's a super nerd techie like myself, actually talking to people was the most challenging thing. Not, not solving technical mm. problems. And, and therefore, my recommendation is, if you want to become uh, an aspiring, if you're an aspiring tech lead, learn the social skills. Yes. Uh, and uh, you, the, the only way you learn social skills is you practice them. Um, yeah. uh, sit with people, don't eat alone, uh, talk, talk uh, make a comment, even if you think people are going to think it's a stupid comment, right? Uh, but don't be the clown, but be authentic. And if people laugh at it, laugh with them. Yes. Don't resist it. Uh, and, and, and just be authentic, be open. And then people will quickly realize that you're a fantastic human being, you're a fantastic asset to have in the team. And, and that's how you build your ecosystem. Excellent. Great advice. And are there any books that have been instrumental in your journey as a leader and tech leader that you'd like to kind of share Yes, um, the, the most recent one um, uh, I've read is a book called Dare to Lead by Bruni uh, Brown. Uh, a fantastic uh, book that brings elements of emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. vulnerability, 
uh, and really a call to action to what is lacking in today's uh, corporate leadership. Uh, I love that. As a matter of fact, uh, if I remember, uh, I think it was uh, the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, that was actually my Christmas gift to my to my senior members of my team. Oh. Um, is that book because I think it's so it is a good book essential and it's got uh, fantastic nuggets uh, that you can live by. That's right. And to the audience, if you haven't already seen it, she does some. Uh, I think she's done a number of TED talks. Uh, watch them to get inspired. Uh, it, it really is a good book. It's a, it's a gateway book for me. It was a gateway book. And um, here you go. Is a is a fun question for you, Ali. If I was a tech genie and I was going to offer you a tech wish for your tech leadership, what would that be? That's uh, a fantastic question. Uh, if I had a tech team, uh, what, what probably I would ask for is, is basically the, the, the ability to be a perfect communicator. Because um, I think that's a super uh, important skill for all leaders. Uh, fundamentally, we're primarily communicators. And if we're not able to communicate what is the purpose of the team, communicate what are the expectations of our stakeholders, uh, and communicate when things go bad, then all chaos breaks down. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Um, yeah. So communication is what I would ask for. Uh, I've been working on it for many years, and I, I still have a long way to go. Hey, from where I'm sitting, Ali, you're doing pretty good. You know, you're doing really good. Yeah, top marks. And and as, a, and as a final kind of full stop to the podcast, um, what, what's your key takeaway that you'd like to give the tech leader men and women out there before we leave? Again, just be authentic and, and uh, make sure the work that you do is worthy of your name. Um, uh, anything we do, uh, we should be able to sign our name just like an artist does. And if it's not worthy for your signature, then don't put it out there. Yeah, love that. That's a great note to finish on. That's it at Tech Leaders out there. Be the artist. Be you, Be the creator and the artist of your work. Thank you for your time, Ali. It's been great having you on board, sir. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me here.